look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. Thanks for tuning in to another edition. Uh, you're with Dave Popovich. No Faisal today. You got me all day or all hour long. Interesting show today. Maybe you've dabbled in pot. Mary Jane, marijuana in your youth. It's about to be legalized. So if you're thinking about taking a toke next year, what you need to know about how it's changed the products and how easy it is to take. We're going to talk about compressed morbidity too. What does that mean? Why is it important to work out into your 80s and your, even into your 90s? And then what do you do with those family heirlooms? How do those china sets and antique tables uh, that aren't seen as valuable to anybody else but you, how do you get rid of them? What do you do with them? Okay, we've got, a, uh, we've got an exciting, we've had an exciting week here. Listen to this. Never, ever, ever give up. Things will work out just fine. Look at the way I've been treated lately, especially by the media. No politician in history, and I say this with great surety, has been treated worse or more unfairly. You can't let them get you down. You can't let the critics and the naysayers get in the way of your dreams. Where do we start? Where do we start with this? Um, it's been an exciting and interesting week um, in U.S. politics. I'm calling this the reality show that we often refer to as U.S. politics. Uh, but it has been a week filled with, um, with some very interesting stuff. Of course, we had, uh, we had the FBI director, Comey, fired. We've had former FBI chief appointed to probe the, uh, the, tr- uh, the Ru- Russia-Trump um, ties. Trump's back on the attack, as you hear, single greatest witch hunt in history. Uh, We'll see how that plays out. There's been pressure on Trump as, of course, the probes intensify, and and Republicans, more and more Republicans starting to speak out about us, you know, a a probe into what's going on. And then how do the markets respond to all of this? So we've had uh, global stocks on, I think it was Wednesday, we saw a massive sell-off. The Dow down 370 points, lots of volatility back into the market. You saw the U.S. dollar shrinking uh, relative uh, to other global currencies. And investors really starting to rethink the Trump trade. So let's get down to it, because this ultimately is a conversation about news versus noise, right? Um, There's been lots of noise. I think there's going to continue to be lots of noise. I think we've learned that. Uh, President Trump's communication style um, is prone to hyperbole. Uh, it is through Twitter in 140-character little bits. Um, it tends to be uh, confrontational and often divisive. And, and, and the market tries to interpret this, and perhaps it's, um, it's learning to, uh, to take the communication a little bit better. But uh, markets this week were really trying to interpret uh, whether these distractions um, are going to derail the Republicans' ability, the Republican administration's ability to deliver on their reform promises. Because some of those reform promises, whether it's tax, regulatory, infrastructure spending, 
have actually been, um, of course, baked into uh, into equity valuations and price market pricing and so on and so forth. So the fact that we haven't had much volatility throughout the course of this year, I'm talking 2017, uh, and then we got that spike in volatility, very sharp volatility this week, um, speaks to uh, the market's ability to in, in, interpret and deal with this information. Now, I think that uh, it is going to become increasingly important here for investors, uh, whether you're doing it yourself or for you know guys like us, to really be able to sift through uh, all of the rhetoric, all of the all of what I call the noise, to try to distill down to what's actually news. Right? Does it change your opinion about uh, the direction of the economy, the valuation on securities, whether it's stocks or bonds or alternatives or whatever the case may be? But it's going to be an exciting if he makes it four years <laughs> because of the. You know, because of this, uh, because of this style and and the controversy that that seems to swirl around uh, around Trump and that he can create. Now, uh, I'll be interested, uh, you know, next week to see how markets respond uh, to this eight day trip um, that Trump has embarked upon. Um, maybe his first real test of of his political prowess, his ability to meet with U.S. allies around the world and communicate. A, a message and a consistency, and then communicate that to you and I uh, as uh, as investors, global investors, or U.S. citizens, whatever that may be. But I, uh, you know, it's just it amazes me at the amount of uh, um, at the amount uh, the, the rhetoric and the amount of volatility that can be created on just a few short a few short words, right? And how the inconsistencies create uncertainty, and that uncertainty creates the volatility. So um, I take it back to a message that, you know, Faisal and I have talked about a lot on the show. Uh, I think that going forward, it's going to become even more important, not that it wasn't important before, but even more important to, uh, to have a firm uh, thesis, a firm set of assumptions under which you are positioning your portfolio, not just for the economic environment, but remember, the economic environment has to feed into what your personal family goals are. And you take those two things, you tie them together, and then you build a uh, you build a wealth plan because it's not just about stocks and bonds. There's there's other assets that families have. Clearly, you build a wealth plan that supports those objectives, and I think that becomes uh, that becomes an important element to the to the overall picture. So. Uh, are we going to hear more from Trump next week? I suspect we will. Uh, it's not just Trump. We also this week uh, saw uh, a lot of volatility coming out of Brazil. So impeachment is a word that we're getting to know more and more about. Uh, last year, we did have a, a Brazilian president that was impeached on uh, some uh, some charges of, uh, of conspiracy and bribery. Sorry, bribery, not conspiracy, but bribery. And we just got news this week that uh, the current president is also under investigation for condoning some bribes to silence some witnesses relative to uh, to some of these charges. Uh, that sent the Brazilian market, therefore the emerging markets, into a bit of turmoil. And there's discussion about impeachment uh, of another Brazilian president. Boy, that'd be a record, I think, two in one year. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. But you can see how this geopolitical risk is starting to build and uh, and and create some problems. So we got to factor that into the overall into the overall scenario. Uh, not sure it's going to get any easier uh, in the short term. However, we'll, uh, we'll we'll continue to try to do our best to interpret that and let you know what uh, what we're thinking about. Okay, um, we've got to get moving on the show here now. Before we sign off on this particular segment, let's uh, let me remind you that we've got an upcoming seminar. 
It's Monday, June 19th, 7 o'clock, 7 to 8 to be precise, at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. We love going down south and talking to uh, all the Calgarians down south that are interested in this process of retirement and how the rules change. So if we don't expect the economic and the investment environment to get any easier, if you attach that complexity with how the rules of investing change when you fundamentally move from accumulating wealth into spending it, or what we call decumulation, what you'll call a lifestyle or income, how do the rules fundamentally change? And if you don't know how they fundamentally change, you're at risk. Come and see us. We're going to talk a lot about that and how to fix that particular problem, overcome and offset those risks. 7 o'clock, June 19th. The Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits to register. Give us a call at 966-8400 or on the web at morethanmoneyradio.com. Join us in a few minutes for a discussion about what to expect from legalized marijuana. You're listening to News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. You're here with Dave today. Um, we're going to talk. There's been a lot of questions about uh, this legalization of marijuana in Canada. Um from a recreational perspective, from a medicinal, medical perspective, from an investment perspective. We're going to try to tackle the recreational market today in a series that we're going to do. We'll tackle um, the uh, the medical uh, aspect of it with Dr. George on a different show. Uh, we've got a wonderful guest to help us understand a little bit about the recreational market and his expectations uh, of what's happening here. Dana Larson is director of uh, Overgrow Canada and a director of Sensible BC. Dana, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So Canada, of course, is in the process of legalizing marijuana, but a lot of people that, I guess, don't know much about it, uh, and they're curious about it. And even some people, you know, we're not talking just in the teens and 20s, we're talking about people in their 50s and 60s, maybe they experimented with it when they were young. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what do we need to know about this, because there's also a lot of, uh, of fear attached to this. Well, for some people, I suppose there, there's a fear, but uh, for anybody who understands the cannabis issue, there should just be a, a feeling of relief that we're finally going to end the, this failed experiment of prohibition and move towards some more reasonable cannabis policies. There's really nothing to be afraid of with cannabis, and it's definitely a much safer choice than alcohol. Yeah, I mean, that, that comparison, uh, that, that comes up a lot, right? We hear that a lot. Um, tell us a little bit about, so for people that are curious, perhaps don't have any experience uh, w- with cannabis at all, what, tell us a bit about the experience and you know, why you should be afraid, a little bit about the comparison to alcohol, if you can draw those comparisons, and then uh, you know, what, what to expect. Well, people like to compare them because they're, they're two popular substances that are, that are widely used, but the effects of alcohol and cannabis are very, very different from each other. Uh, I mean, alcohol directly affects your hand-eye coordination. It can make people aggressive. It leads to a lot of conflict sometimes and problems, but because it's very widely used, we tend to sort of ignore a lot of those negatives and, and just see it as a normalized thing. Uh, cannabis use uh, might have some drawbacks, but it's uh, it's a very peaceful activity. Uh, cannabis is not associated with violence or or uh, other kind of bad behavior generally. Uh, cannabis users tend to be peaceful people, and the cannabis experience. I mean, sometimes people get high, but the, the word is kind of overused. And, and a lot of cannabis users, certainly at, at my dispensary, they, they use cannabis because they feel better, uh, and uh, and that's part of the the experience. Um, but uh, but usually, you know, smoking cannabis, you feel relaxed. You, you feel your mind can be stimulated. You can feel more creative. Uh, you know, music and food taste better. And it's a nice enhancement uh, to other, other pleasurable activities. So, and I know you're not a, a doctor, and I'm not asking you to comment, uh, I guess, from a medical perspective. But 
benefits and risks. Um, how would you sort of weigh those off? Well, I think cannabis can be very beneficial. And, uh, you know, the main issues with cannabis uh, do with illegality are our purity and making sure you're getting you know, cannabis that doesn't have anything else in it and that it's a quality product. Uh, and, and that's more available with more dispensaries and more access out there. I think we're getting a more reliable cannabis product than we've had before. Uh, and um, for, for a lot of people, it's just uh, an experience they, they really prefer. And it's not something we need to be afraid of. Cannabis is very normal and has been part of Canadian society, not just since the 1960s, but for, for hundreds of years, cannabis has been used by Canadians medically and socially. It's really part of our country's fabric. And so you, you bring up an interesting point um, about the, the quality of the product, right? So um, is, is the cannabis today the same as the cannabis in the past? And if not, what are the differences? Well, I think it's better now. Uh, I think that, that cannabis is, is safer and more effective now than it has been in the past. But we also have to keep in mind that cannabis is not just something that people just only smoke. And that, that's sort of the perspective most people have, is that this is a smoked substance and only used in that way. And although certainly a lot of cannabis users do smoke it, uh, you can make tinctures and drops and extracts and capsules and other ways of taking it that it can have a wide variety of effects that are used in very different ways. And I actually think that legalization will mean less Canadians smoking cannabis because more other options will be available. And I think we'll see some people turning away from smoking and towards other forms of ingesting it in different ways. Uh, the reason people smoke it really is is partly because it's an immediate effect and it's for it's very quick and very active, but also because uh, when you have an extract or an edible, you can't always tell the quality or the potency by looking at it. Whereas with a raw bud, you can. But so, but under legalization, you'll be able to know the quality of the extracts and, and edibles that you're getting, and so there'll be less concern about about not knowing the potency and not being sure what you're going to get. So I think legalization will mean less smoking and more consuming cannabis in alternate ways. Mm. So as an advocate, um, what what would you say are the risks people need to be aware of? Well, right now, the biggest risk of being a cannabis user is the law and being arrested and being punished. But uh, I think you also, uh, in terms of being consuming cannabis, you want to be careful if you're a new user, uh, especially when it comes to eating or extracts or things like that, to, to start off with a small dose and, and work your way up to the appropriate dose, whether it's medical or recreational or whatever you're taking it. Uh, when people smoke cannabis, the effect is very quick, and you can you can stop when you've had enough. When you eat it, it takes over an hour for the effects to kick in. And so if you've eaten too much, you can have quite an intense experience, which for some people is not what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that's the main concern, is to be sure how you're consuming it and, and to get the appropriate dose. Dana, I want to thank you very much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dana Larson is a director of Overgrow Canada, a director of Sensible BC. We're talking, obviously, a little bit about the recreational use of marijuana and is expected to be legalized in Canada by mid-next year. Um, next week, we're going to have Dr. George on the show, and we're going to talk about the medical side uh, and the risks and the benefits of using marijuana when it becomes uh, legal in Canada. Uh, and we'll be interested to sort of compare and contrast because it is, uh, you know, it's expected to be a big market. I also hope that we'll have a chance to explore what the, um, you know, what the legal side is and perhaps even... Uh, talk uh, to some of the companies that are uh, sprouting up throughout Canada on that. Uh, before we end up this or end off this segment, let me remind you that on Monday, June nineteenth at seven o'clock, 
at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits, so down south this time. We're going to hold our next seminar, and we'd love to see you there. We're going to talk about the process of retiring. There's four different buckets we're going to cover off. We're going to talk about income. We're going to talk about growth. We're going to talk about health. And we're also going to talk about legacy. If you want to join us for that, I would encourage you to give, me, uh, give us a call at 966-8400. Or alternatively, you can register on, uh, on the net at morethanmoneyradio.com. Now, up next, don't miss this segment. We'll find out what's the best form of exercise for you at any age and range. And it's surprising benefits, not just in life, but also in death. You're on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're with Dave Popovich, no Faisal today. Uh, unfortunately, he's away for the day, but um, I'll see if I can poke some shots at him throughout the course of the day. Uh, you're on News Talk 770 and more of the money. We're going to talk a little bit about, uh, about fitness and an, uh, a, a phrase called compressed morbidity. So is fitness, we know it's good in your lifetime, but is it also good uh, in death? And that's an interesting question to ask, perhaps a little bit morbid, but it is an, there's an, some interesting conclusions here. Now, to help us understand a little bit about this, we've got James Fell, author of the syndicated column In Your Face Fitness, writes that for the uh, Chicago Tribune. He's also a contributor to the LA Times and Men's uh, Health. So you can read his blogs on bodyforwife.com. James, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Dave. Well, let's talk a little bit about this, uh, the benefits of exercise, particularly later in your life, and and maybe just beyond the obvious, right? So we all, I think, generally know we should stay physically active, but but why? Well, there's the thing about, you know, living longer, because I guess most people want to live longer. But do you really want to live longer if you still got that long downhill slide of, you know, medications and hospitals and tubes and orifices and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. It doesn't sound like a lot of fun. But the great thing about being physically active, taking good care of yourself, is you get this thing called compressed morbidity. It's also called compressed disability, where you actually stay spry and lively right up until you're near the end. And then that that whole massive downward slide, so make your peace with God type of, yeah. type of messaging, is mercifully brief. So it can be, you know, compressed into a period of about six months or a year as opposed to a 10-year gradual decline. It almost sounds morbid to think a little bit about that, right? But but when I was reading the article and the research around around compressed morbidity, I thought to myself, you know what? Who who wouldn't want that, right? You want you want to be as as sharp and alert and active as you can be until the very end. Um, I I'm sure you know people. I know people um, who have been on a decline for literally ten years, and it's it looks terrible. And I, the thing is that you know. 50, 60 years ago, those people, their decline would have been a lot shorter because it's medication, right. modern modern medicine that's keeping them alive, which I'm not saying that we should just let them die or anything like that. Right. But but the actions that you can take when you're younger are going to, you know, keep you spry. And that the thing is that the sooner you start, the better. So if you start when you're 60, the benefit isn't going to be nearly as good as if you start when you're like 30 or 40, but there's still a benefit. You know, Jack LaLanne, famous fitness guy, uh, always said it's never too late to start, and he was right. We had an article in the Globe and Mail um, recently talking about uh, two fellas, both in their 80s, mid to late 80s, that were, um, you know, were running races and setting, uh, you know, records for marathons, distance, sprints, the whole nine yards, right? And it's impressive to read those things as a bit of a reminder that it is, it is possible to do that. I'm interested in your thoughts uh, around uh, the kinds of exercises 
that you sh- you could or should be doing at different stages in life. I-, I presume that you probably have more options when you're 20 and 30 versus when you're 60 and 70. But can you maybe just give us your thoughts, James, in terms of if you're starting along the, the way here at different ages, what-, what kinds of things would be good things to start with? Well, the number one rule is don't get hurt. The older yep. you get, the harder it is to recover from injury. So you want to you know, push your capabilities so that you get a training effect, but at the same time, don't push so hard that you are not able to recover from it. And I read that article, and what it talks about, there's a spectrum of intensity. There's the really super short burst, all-out type of intensity. Mm-hmm. Things like uh, one of the things that wasn't mentioned in the article, but at the extreme end of the, the spectrum, we've got things like weightlifting. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got the the long and slow type of things like running marathons. And they they have differing benefits. The one thing about the the aerobic type of exercise, like cycling or swimming or running for long distances, that is mostly beneficial to your organs, and that includes your brain. So, you know, it helps keep your, your brain working well and your heart and lungs and liver and kidneys, all that kind of stuff. But the more strength-building stuff, lifting weights or really high-intensity things, is more about your muscles and your skeletal structure. And they both have tremendous benefits. So the, the aerobic exercise is going to keep your organ or organs functioning well so that you can live a long time and live healthily. But especially for older people, the strength training is really important because it, it helps keep you independent. You right. can still you know, grasp that railing while you're going down those icy stairs so that you don't slip and fall. It'll keep your bones strong in case you do fall. Uh, it allows you to carry your own groceries and shovel your own snow and get in and out of a vehicle and all those types of things. So you don't just want to live a long time. You want to be able to, to you know, be independent. So my advice to people is to do a bit of both. Do some resistance training, whether it's weightlifting or body weight stuff, and do some aerobic stuff, which can just be brisk walking if you want. The, uh, the idea is that your body is trainable, so you ease your way into it and, and put some effort in and keep pushing your limits a little bit. But again, like, you know, I'm turning 49 next month, and I'm getting to that age where it's like, you know, you got to be a little more careful because things just don't heal up the way they used to. Well, you and I are about the same vintage. I got you by a little bit, but uh, yeah, I know about those waking up with those uh, those aches and pains, and you think, "Oh, I got a sleeping injury. I wonder how I did that." Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, any difference between men and women in terms of the advice you would give? Not really. The uh, I mean, it, it, it's it's there. There's little nuances at the the extreme end of training where you're training for competitive reasons, but the. The information is pretty basic. Do what you can. Uh, try and get a mixture of activities, but most importantly, find something that you enjoy doing because adherence rates for physical activity are notoriously low. So find something that, that you can get into and you don't mind expending time, money, and effort on. You know, in one of your um, articles in the Chicago Tribune, um, there was a stat that caught my attention. It was 70% of 70-year-olds can't get up off the floor without grabbing onto something. That sounded astoundingly high. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, they, they, that, and that's the testament to the resistance training, that you need the muscles to be able to, you know, do these daily activities. And you can often tell how fit someone is or, or, you know, how 
spry they are, how much life they've got left in them even by things like grip strength, how easily they get out of a chair, Mm -hmm. uh, and how fast or how slow that they walk. When people are really weak and walk very slowly, that's not a good indication of their future. And, and in that same article, there was actually some research, I think this was back in 2012, um, looking at um, what exercise does not just for aging but in death. And these were significant extensions in terms of years, yeah, postponing morbidity and mortality, right? Yeah, I think it was the, the seventh-day Aventus that they, they looked at. We're looking at you know somewhere between 14 and 16 years of good quality life extension. And these are people that um, they don't smoke. Uh, so, so just as a general rule, if you don't smoke and you either drink lightly or not at all, and you exercise regularly, and you have a healthy diet, and your body weight is uh, you know at a relatively healthy range, you're going to live a lot longer and a lot better than the rest of the population. Well, this is that preventative medicine that we talk about. I mean, we do a lot of shows here in Canada talking about the healthcare system and with this big demographic uh, move that you know uh, bubble that we've got moving through the healthcare system. That it's going to be very difficult from a service perspective to continue to provide it. Now, we provide it a little differently in Canada than you do in the U.S. But these are things, I mean... These I'm actually are things... in Canada. I live in Calgary. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. I thought, uh, you know, I thought you were down in the U.S. Um, so, yeah, you get it. But, but the, you know, the, the, uh, the things that we can do as individuals, uh, James, are, and within our control, can extend quality and length of life, um, you know, by just doing the right things. Yeah, I mean, there there is a bit of social responsibility that, that people, I think, I, I encourage them to consider that if everyone is not taking care of themselves, then the system is primed for collapse. But also, you know, think about your own self-interest. Think yeah. about your family and wanting to just live a good quality life for a long time and wanting to be there for, you know, kids and grandkids and, and that type of thing. That, uh, that, you know, there, there's a lot of motivation to do this. Yeah. And, you know, just think about that hospital bed, tubes and orifices, long downhill slide. It doesn't sound pleasant. And there are steps that you can take now to prevent that. In, in 20 seconds or less, how much exercise is enough? Uh, well, there, the American College of Sports Medicine recommends up to an hour a day, five or six times a week. But it doesn't have to be super high intensity. And the thing is, your average Canadian's watching about three hours of TV every day. So don't tell me you don't have the time for that. <laughs> Fair. Great point to leave that on. We're running out of time. Thanks for joining us today, James. You're very welcome, Dave. All right. James Fell, author of the syndicated column In Your Face Fitness. That's for the Chicago Tribune and a contributor to the L.A. Times and Men's Health. Uh, and you can read about um, uh, or his blog, I guess, on uh, bodyforwife.com. Now, we've got a seminar coming up on Monday, June 19th at 7 o'clock at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. We'll see all of our friends down south. If you're interested in, uh, in um, uh, not just being able to afford the time to do fitness, but to afford the, the, the lifestyle that you want, that is what we're going to be talking about. Give us a call at 966-8400 to register for that or go on the, the website at morethanmoneyradio.com. Stay tuned after the break to learn about what to do with those family heirlooms that your kids may not want. You're listening to News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Welcome back here with Dave Popwich on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Um, we're going to be talking about downsizing, which is something that more and more people seem to be facing, whether you're doing it yourself or you're helping somebody do it. We've got Cindy Bodet, the owner of Destination Seniors Downsizing, a regular contributor to our show, seniorsdownsizing.ca for further information. Cindy, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Dave. 
All right. We've talked about this before. I've got to tell you, we have lots of conversations with people um, about, about the process of downsizing. Um, and it's from two perspectives, right? It's from the people that are doing the downsizing, maybe your parents, and then it's from the kids. So here's a question I've got for you. Why is it getting harder and harder to downsize or pass on your family heirlooms? Well, you know, um, it's getting hard because the children, um, let's say mom and dad, are typically our clients are 86 and over. So yeah. their children are in their 60s, and, and they've got all their own stuff. <laughs> and they really have already set a certain style in their home that they don't really want any of mom and dad stuff. And then the grandchildren, you know, they, they're the Ikea generation. They, you know, they, they want that. They don't want any old um, Chippendale uh, slant top desk, you know, in their place. You know, yeah. so it's tough to get rid of this stuff unless you have really unique items. Well, and I think that's, you know, that's what was interesting. I'm going to use my own personal experience going through that process with my parents. I remember my father quite clearly uh, and very proudly stating that uh, to my brother and I that, you know, which, which one of you guys wants this piece of art? And I was looking at it thinking to myself, you can't call that art, Dad, right? <laughs> that's that's mm-hmm. not. So, uh, so to your point, I think that there, um, there's sentimental value to stuff that the parents hold uh, may not necessarily be the same thing as the kids. What's, so what do you do, right? So if you're, if you're one of those aging, um, downsizing uh, couples or people, and you've got a whole bunch of stuff, what, uh, you know, how do you figure out what is actually a value to the kids or what isn't? Well, first of all, we have a chat with both. And then, you know, once we've had a chat with the, the children and, and the parents, then we kind of come up with a plan. You know, I've got a lot of people who, and this is really hard, you know, they may have been with the Calgary Stampede for 30 years, and the Stampede over the last mm-hmm. 20 years gave them bronzes. Right. And they think that that bronze has value. Now they want to sell it because they're moving. I said, well, number one, it's a gift. Number two, it has your name, you know, right on the front of it. I said, you know, it has value to you because it was a gift to you. I said, why would you want to sell it? Because it really, they've made those bronzes for the uh, directors at the Stampede, and maybe they made 20. So it has like zero value. So that's what we kind of go through everything with them. Uh, You know, if you've got a motorhome, a 48-foot motorhome, I can sell it. Right. But if you have a sofa bed in the basement or you've got a place or you've got china that is missing one cup, it's missing three side plates, two dinner plates, you know, it's just it's not a complete set of anything, it's not going to sell. Right. It's going to go to charity. Right. I, I, you know what? That, that's probably uh, – I don't envy you in your job delivering that message because I imagine you get a range of reactions when you, when you sort of go through that. But, um, you know, what are – I guess – what are some of the ways that you can go through that process, either as an individual or you take people through that as painlessly as possible, determining what's valuable and what's not? Yeah, sure. First of all, I apologize before I start anything. <laughs> and I tell them how sorry I am to give you this bad news, you know, that, you know, other people will go in and say, oh, yeah, we can sell it, we can sell it. But I can't because I'm not going to lie to them and tell them that that is going to sell. I mean, there are certain lots of things that are going to sell, and I'll go through them, and I'll say to them, okay, now how long have you had this 10-foot sofa? Oh, 30 years. Yeah, well, I think it's lived, you know, past its use. And because they are of that generation of 
never throwing anything out because most likely, you know, if they're born in 29-ish, 25, they've lived through their parents in the Depression. Right. And that's when you, you never had anything. So they think you, it's a slap in the face that somebody doesn't want it. It's terrible. The kids cannot tell them. They don't want to listen to their 65-year-old kids because those are still their children. But they will listen to me when I give them, when I can show them pragmatic information that tells them that this is what this item sold for. And antiques aren't that popular anymore. And that's that's another thing. You you Depending on the style of furniture, um, you know, I've got a client that um, had a fire in their place. Everything has been refinished. Right. Perfect. We're going to sell it all. No problem. Right. It's all been refinished. It looks marvelous. But, you know, I had a you know client last week where there's a water stain on every end table, coffee table, dining room table. Well, the cost to refinish any of this stuff is huge. Right. So why would somebody spend $500 on a table and chairs that they have to refinish that really isn't that comfortable to begin with? What's easier, Cindy? Is is it easier to, I mean, you often are brought in from an estate perspective, right. so you're probably dealing with the kids, you know, dealing with mom and dad's estate and what's left over. Is it easier to deal with parents um, and make those decisions up front about, and have the conversation, you know, as a family about what sentimental value and what everybody wants, or do you, do you see one better than the other? You know what, it, it doesn't really matter either way. Typically, we work 90% of the time with the clients because their parents are still with it and they have a good idea of what's going on and they don't want their children telling them what to do. Right. However, if we're working in the estate mode, then we listen to the, you know, what the estate, what the family would like to see happen. And I often tell people, you know, don't trip over dollars to pick up pennies because estate sales are expensive. And I mean, it's all about time and it's all about research and it's about organizing and making the best impression. So when clients come in the home to look at buying stuff, that it is clearly marked, it's professionally done, um, and the wholesale is professional. It's not just some ramshackle garage sale, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, we have a very professional way of doing it. Um so that's, you know, so when we're dealing with the family, it's one thing. When we're dealing with the parents, it's, it's totally another thing. A lot of the time, the family is very understanding, saying, we know mom and dad, you know, have got, you know, all this clutter. What we're going to do is we're going to take all the good stuff, and then what's left, you can sell. And I go, well, you know what? Yeah. What you're leaving is not worth selling. It's going to cost you far more to, to run a sale with this stuff than it will to send it to charity. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if this is a fair question or you can even answer it or not, but if, if you had to anecdotally um, give us some idea of what an average, you know, just an average Calgary family estate sale, what kind of money would it bring in when you say don't trip over dollars to pick up pennies? Right. Well, typically, so you want to get, make sure that the house has got a few good pieces that will bring in a minimum five to eight hundred dollars because that's now you're now you're kind of rolling yeah. uh and then you get the little bits and pieces so if you're if you can bring seven to eight thousand nine thousand into a sale then it's probably worth it to do it right and but how if much... you're only going to bring two thousand dollars it's going to cost you way more to do that than it is to, um, to for the revenue yeah, off of it. exactly yeah. yeah you will and... never pay for the cost of an estate sale unless you're selling the appliances, the, you know, 
and the high-end appliances. You know, right. if the house was being torn down and the family said, oh, yeah, mom and dad refinished a couple of years ago, but the people are ripping it down. Let's sell the mealy stove. Let's sell the Jenner, you know, this, that, and the other. And, you know, the, you know I've got one place where the house is going to be totally renovated. She's got a brand-new washer and dryer front load. I said, let's just sell it. Mm-hmm. Might as well make a thousand bucks right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, you talked about antiques not being mm-hmm. maybe in vogue right now. What what are the desirable or collectible pieces these days? Well, you know, mid-century modern, so teak from the '60s, from the late '50s, has been very very popular. Where people stumble and think that they've got a gold mine is if they have Canadian teak. And Canadian teak is a little less desirable because it's from actually the 70s. It doesn't hold like a name um, of a European artist that designed the teak. Um, And teak is, you know, a lot of it is veneer, right? So you have to be very, very careful with it. If it has a scratch, it's going to be tough to get rid of because it is a veneer. You may have to replace the whole top. So, again, expensive. But there are certain teak pieces that are real money makers, And there are certain mid-century modern pieces like the old princess phone and, and um, you know, uh, mid-century modern lighting, which is, you know, kind of has the globes on it. Um, those things really do sell every day. Uh, we have no trouble getting rid of them. Teak, but teak, you know, ever since uh, Mad Men went off the air, it has slowed down a bit in teak. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. You could actually connect those two, can you? No, absolutely. You bet. Interesting. Okay, so uh, as we wrap up this segment, um, just some quick advice for people that are listening that, that are going through a downsizing or perhaps an estate sale. Where do they start? Well, first of all, I always say to people, pick exactly what you want to take with you and what you're going to give to the family. Once you've done that, then take a look at what you got and go, oh, you know, I got 10 Hummels and I got some Royal Daltons and, you know, I got an old sofa in the basement and, you know, this, that, and the other, shed is full, garage is full. Then take a look at it and go, okay, maybe the cheapest way to do it is to donate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if they have a lot of things left over that are really good quality, and um, they think that it might sell, that they, that they should never do it on their own. I, I often warn clients, don't go to Kijiji by yourself because it's dangerous. Right. And uh, you want to make sure that, you know, your family's there. But typically, you know, my clients are successful. So their kids are successful. Kids don't live here. Right. So they, you don't want them doing this stuff on their own. And so I'd always say to them, you know, find an expert who knows what they're doing, who's honest, and a proven track record, and have them help you out. Cindy, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Dave, for having me. I've been joined by Cindy Bodet, owner of Destination Seniors Downsizing. You can get more information uh, on Cindy and her company at seniorsdownsizing.ca. Um, you know, the, the legacy, the down, sorry, the downsizing and the estate sale, all part of the legacy conversation of the four buckets. Uh, we're talking about the four buckets at our upcoming seminar on Monday, June 19th. It'll be held at 7 o'clock. It's 7 to 8, to be precise, at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. We'd love to see you there. Uh, if you're interested in joining us, give us a call at 966-8400 uh, to register your seat, or you can go to morethemoneyradio.com and register there. Okay, we've got to sign off another show. I want to remind you that you can access any of the past segments on morethanmoneyradio.com or you can get them delivered directly to you by searching for More Than Money Radio, or sorry, More Than Money, in brackets, CHQR, 
on iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money on Newstalk 770. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.